and welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we take time each week to point out the flaws, foibles, and fraud in the foreign policy establishment and national security state. It's not difficult these days to do that because we can pretty much see the disastrous consequences of the war party in real time today in Afghanistan. 20 years of failed war policy has ended in a dysfunctional evacuation with a lot of finger pointing and no accountability. We will be talking to reporter and author Spencer Ackerman in a bit on his new book, Reign of Terror, which pretty much encapsulates how the post 9-11 global war on terror led us to this point. But first, let's redirect our attention to another potential foreign policy disaster in the making, our relationship with Iran. Biden has pledged to get the country back into the nuclear deal with Iran, at least he did on the campaign trail. This is an international agreement that by all accounts was keeping Iran from building a nuclear weapon while its government was able to rebuild parts of its economy that was struggling from US-led global sanctions. Trump got out of that deal and reimposed the sanctions. Iran responded by resuming uranium enrichment. So Biden wins the presidency and gets back into the deal. Easy peasy, right? Wrong. Talks have struggled as hawks in the administration and in Congress press for more restrictions in a new deal. And Israel continues to put pressure on the White House to stay out of the deal. That was on full display last week when new Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett came to Washington and reiterated Israel's opposition. He proposed a strategy of, quote, death by a thousand cuts against Iran and asked that we do not pull troops out of Iraq and Syria. For his poor part, according to reports, Biden seemed amenable, if not a bit distracted. It would seem that the JCPOA talks in Vienna have stalled. So what is going on here, Dan? I am completely confused. Does the Biden administration want to get back into the D, into the JCPOA or not? I, I think they, in principle, they, they have wanted to do that. They've taken some steps towards doing that in terms of participating in the negotiations in Vienna. But obviously, they haven't taken any concrete steps in terms of sanctions relief or anything else that might give Iran an incentive to uh, scale back some of the things that they've done over the last couple of years. And so, and of course, they've taken additional actions in the last year in response to Israeli uh, assassination and sabotage attacks that have given fodder to hawkish critics of the deal to say, well, see, Iran is moving ever farther away from these restrictions. And so the deal is now uh, irrelevant. Uh, the deal is, is essentially already gone as far as they're concerned. And so why would you rejoin something that's already uh, fallen apart? And, and Bennett is, is banging that drum very hard. Uh, he, he basically considers the nuclear deal, uh, if not uh, a dead letter, uh, very close to being one. Uh, and, and so he's going to try to be uh, approach it with a, a bit of a softer touch uh, than Netanyahu did. Of course, Netanyahu was railing against it all the time in public uh, and being very uh, both ideological about it, also very partisan in his alignment with the Republicans. And so uh, he was probably the worst messenger for the hawkish side uh, to deal with Biden. Bennett is trying to, uh, as I put it in a recent piece that I wrote, uh, kill the nuclear deal with kindness towards Biden uh, by, by basically buttering up Biden and saying, we're not going to attack you in public. Uh, we'll express our disagreements privately uh, with the sort of the implicit bargain that Biden should do the same thing with them. 
uh, with whatever he disagrees with uh, in terms of what the Israelis are doing. And so I think Bennett is looking for a green light to do more of these sabotage attacks, uh, to carry out more covert attacks against uh, Iranian interests uh, with the, the sort of the tacit approval of the U.S. And my, my fear is that if that continues, uh, whether whether the U.S. is approving it or not, if, that, if those attacks continue, the, the new Iranian government under Raisi will conclude that they have no reason to negotiate because uh, they're going to keep being attacked no matter what they do. And so uh, I, I fear that that could end up leading to the, the nuclear talks uh, collapsing entirely. And, and recently, uh, the Iranian government said that they're still taking their time to settle in after the transition following the June election. And they're talking about a delay of possibly two to three months, uh, which is not unreasonable uh, given how long it took Biden to get started uh, on these talks. Uh, but I, it's going to be interpreted, I think, in a lot of circles in Washington as uh, evidence that Iran uh, isn't taking the talk seriously enough. And so that's going to encourage naysayers against the deal uh, to sort of uh, push Biden to, to give up on it. So I opened the the news on Monday, I think it was, or Sunday, and I saw a few of the stories about the Naftali Bennett Biden meeting, including this this phraseology of uh, death by a thousand cuts. That right. the strategy that Bennett had allegedly, you know, you know, per, per, you know, promoted to uh, Biden, proposed to, to Biden. What does this actually mean? I couldn't suss it out, and I feel like the media was so distracted by Afghanistan that an, an aggressive statement like that was just kind of left. To our own imagination, right? It, I mean, it, it does. It does sound rather ominous. I mean, it, it suggests that they're aiming at uh, regime change in the near term, right? That they're trying to bring down the Iranian government uh, by doing lots of different things against them. Um, my my impression, based on what I I've read about Bennett and what I've seen from uh, accounts of the meeting, is that he had in mind some combination of sanctions, covert action. Uh, and then, you know, possibly the threat of direct military action as well. Uh, although it, it seemed like he was he was more interested in in a sort of dispersed response, a response to all sorts of activities across the region, uh, and that he wanted U.S. support uh, for for countering or, or or saying that they were countering uh, Iranian activities, uh, say in Syria uh, or Iraq or, or elsewhere. And so, I it seems like that's where that's headed or that's what it's uh, aimed at. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. The, the coverage was made it pretty hard to understand what exactly he was proposing um, and, and what he envisioned the U.S. role in all of that to be. Um, are they just asking for the U.S. to stay out of their way? Uh, are they asking for U.S. assistance? Uh, that, that part uh, is less clear. Yeah. I mean, what bothers me, I think, the most about the uh, flimsy coverage and I'm looking at, you know, like the, you know, I think it was the Politico or Axios, maybe it was the Axios piece, um, which is never fully in depth anyway, by the nature of the platform. But I, I, I feel like, you know, they sort of just, you know, kind of glossed over the, the idea that the Biden administration is now pessimistic about the future of the JCPOA talks and renewal. And I feel like that it was almost an after the fact comment. And I, and again, maybe 
because of the circumstances with Afghanistan that we're not fully paying attention. But it, it almost seems as though that that's a big deal to me that the administration is acknowledging some level of pessimism about the deal. And on top of that, this visit with Neftali Bennett was almost like, okay, thank you for proposing a death by um, a thousand cuts. And yeah, uh, yeah, you go about your business attacking Iran covertly, overtly, and and help in, in using our allies in the region to do it. Um, that that's fine. You know, it's not that we have like a deal that we want to get back into or anything. And it just seemed very incongruent to me. And that's why I mentioned in my opening remarks that I felt like that there was some level of distraction on the part of the president, which, yeah, hello. I mean, look at what he's, look at what's going on. He, he I, I, I would have liked it if he would have just canceled this meeting with Neftali right. Bennett because it was supposed to be Thursday. They postponed it to Friday. I'm sorry. Now I know the Israelis when they come to town feel like the red carpet goes out, the whole world has to stop for the meetings. Um, well, times have changed and we had real crisis on our hands. And so we, he meets with Bennett and then Bennett goes back to his people and his press and acts as though he got everything that he wanted from Biden. Mm. And all we have are these weird pictures of Biden just sitting across from uh, Neftali Bennett, just looking like he wanted to be anywhere but. And basically right. not saying either way, affirmatively or not, whether or not we're going to take our troops out of Iraq, uh, of Iraq and Syria. And I'm like, don't tell us what to do, you know? And I feel like Biden maybe just took a, you know, he just made the decision going into this meeting that, you know what, I got to get through the meeting. I got to get onto more important things. I'll deal with this guy later, but it just doesn't look good. I don't want Israel coming in and telling us where we're going to put our troops or not. Right. Well, and, and that request to keep our troops in Syria and Iraq uh, underscores that the the military presence that we have in those countries isn't really about ISIS uh, anymore. Uh, if it you know to the extent that it ever was, yeah, that it is uh, it is now directed against Iranian interests, and that's the way that it's perceived uh, both by the Iranians and by the Israelis. And so the Israelis want those troops there uh, to serve as sort of a, a tripwire, I think, uh, in the in the yes. hopes of stoking tensions uh, with Iranian. Uh, forces and, and Iran-backed militias. And so uh, that, that's my concern about their continued presence there. And uh, and obviously, we've seen earlier this year, uh, U.S. airstrikes against Iraqi militias, both in Syria and Iraq, uh, are showing that that, that flashpoint can uh, lead to, to more conflict, potentially. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they, they still held the meeting, even though Biden was dealing with everything uh, related to Afghanistan. Uh, the, the one thing that I found really disturbing or potentially uh, bad is that Biden said, well, we're trying diplomacy right now, but uh, we'll consider other options. Yes. And this, yes. Was, you know, this wasn't the full all options are on the table boilerplate that we usually hear, but it, it indicated that he thought that there was some other option available. And that, that's troubling because we know that the sanctions route is bankrupt and, and Biden's own people have said as much. They know that maximum pressure can't work. And so uh, if not diplomacy, then what? That implies military action, which we know is also just going to lead uh, or give Iran a new incentive to actually pursue nuclear weapons, which they have forsworn up until now. So it's the, both of those other options seem like dead ends. 
So what other options could there be exactly. except Why? to stick with the negotiations? Right. And so I, you know, I hope that it was just empty boilerplate. And it's the kind of thing that Biden felt he had to say to keep the Israeli government happy. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I don't know why, well, I, I know why, but I, I don't like that our government has to try to placate them all the time. Yeah. Uh, when this is our diplomatic endeavor, this is our policy, it's not theirs. They're not in the non-proliferation treaty. They have nuclear weapons themselves. They really have no business talking about non-proliferation when they're a huge rogue proliferator in their own right. So what you know, we there, there there's always this desire to cater uh, to the Israeli government's preferences uh, because of uh, the you know the closeness of the relationship and all of the support that they have in Congress. But it's it's really not uh, constructive. It's not useful for U.S. interests that we have to constantly keep going to them and, and treating their concerns about Iran's nuclear program as though they're in good faith when we know they're not. Yeah, I mean, I feel I just feel like the whole meeting was a mistake. Uh, if I had been advising, nobody would want my advice. But I mean, if I had been <laughs> advising the president, I'd say, listen, we have an unfolding crisis in Afghanistan. Kabul is on fire, literally. OK, we need to put this meeting off. Tell the prime minister whatever you have to. We could put it off till next week or we could just put it off indefinitely. Um, but we need to come with our A game to meetings like this. And I feel like, you know, I agree with you. He probably said some things because he felt like he needed to placate Bennett. Um, I disagree that he should be doing that, but perhaps maybe then it should have been a closed door meeting. Uh, mm -hmm. They would have talked in uh, private, um, made their assurances in private. But I feel like the um, the outcome of this um, meeting was great spin for Bennett and right. uh, in the Israeli press. But it, I can't see how this helps advance the JCPOA talks at all, because Iran's right. looking at this and they're like, what is he saying? What is right. he agreeing to? Why is he being amenable? Why is he being distracted? Why is he talking about other than diplomatic means? I mean, if if we were having a hard time getting these talks back on track before, this meeting, mm -hmm. I can't imagine, didn't serve us at least one nail in the coffin. And it, well, and it, it may be, and I, I think there, was already, there were already a couple nails in the coffin uh, because of the, the problems of the timing uh, that have cropped up this year. Uh, when Biden was elected, there was a lot of urgency uh, on the part of nuclear deal supporters uh, telling him he had to, to get back in right away as, you know, as soon as possible. And they, they took their time at the beginning of the year and didn't really get down to business until April. Uh, and the, the negotiations in Vienna uh, were, were very slow to get going. And, and yes, the, you know, the Iranians have their part to play in that as well. But but Biden's lack of urgency and his lack of any offer of sanctions relief uh, really slowed everything down uh, so much so that by the time you get to, to June and the new presidential election, they'd made no, they had not made enough significant, significant progress to wrap it up. And now we are dealing with the aftermath of that with the transition to the new government. Um, so the, you know, there, there was a, a narrow window of opportunity uh, that Biden missed. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, uh, there, I think there was an assumption that the Iranians had to make a deal, that they had to come to the table and 
so we didn't have to offer them anything. And that, that proved to be incorrect. Uh, and I think we, we make that mistake a lot in our diplomacy. We assume that the other side, because they're under sanctions, has to capitulate, um, which is really the same attitude that Trump had. Uh, and, and one government after another proves to us that that's not true, that they are prepared to put up with that burden, with those costs, uh, if, if they think that they can get a better arrangement out of it. And so uh, it's, a, it's unfortunate that Biden has, I think, dropped the ball on, uh, on these nuclear talks. And uh, trying to placate the Israelis is not going to, to help matters. Along that same line, uh, they've just added to the nuclear negotiations team Dan Shapiro, uh, the former ambassador to Israel, who is going to now work as a liaison with Israel. And you know, why, why do you need a liaison with Israel for dealing with this? Uh, but obviously there's a perception that they do need to basically keep the Israelis, if not happy, at least uh, quiet. And so uh, he's being sent, uh, he'll be splitting his time between Washington and Jerusalem uh, to, to try to, to uh, keep them from causing too much trouble, I guess. Right. And I don't think the Israelis are going to be quiet. They might not take the same overt tact as Netanyahu who did during his term, um, but when you basically announce a strategy of death of a thousand cuts, I'm thinking that being quiet and placated is not um, what they're all about. And uh, having a liaison is not going to change that. It just it just looks like we're putting, again, our thumb on the scale of the of of of, of Iran's rivals and enemies. And that's not going to help us in Vienna. Today is Spencer Ackerman. He has been a national security reporter over the last 20 years for several publications, including The New Republic, Wired, The Guardian, and most recently, The Daily Beast. He shared in the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service Journalism for the Snowden leaks to The Guardian. He is the author of Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And he also writes a newsletter, Forever Wars, that you can find at foreverwars.substack.com. Welcome to the show, Spencer. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure, and uh, I really enjoyed the book. It's uh, it's a fascinating uh, summary of how we got to where we are. Uh, uh, one of the things you say at, near the beginning of the book is that Trump brought aspects of the war home, but fundamentally the war was always home. Uh, what are some of the most significant examples of how the war on terror changed the United States that you discuss in the book? Change the United States is um, a tricky term. So what I, right. I want to try and okay. emphasize is that the war on terror is part of a historical pattern. Um, so it accelerates certain aspects of, of where America was going. Um, it shifts other trajectories back in a way that's very familiar to students of American history, by which I mean uh, the settlement of the West, native genocide, chattel slavery, uh, the imperialist wars that um, the United States starts to, to launch uh, in 1898 and so forth. Um, what I mean in that instance is uh, the creation of things like uh, the Department of Homeland Security, which puts immigration in the context of counterterrorism. So no longer is immigration primarily considered a mechanism to make more Americans, but instead um, a threat to those Americans that are already here. Um, the uh, creation of a 
system of mass surveillance, uh, indiscriminate surveillance that renders the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution quaint. Um, that uh, would happen in secret um, and continue, you know, to, to the present day with some amendations. Um, the uh, creation of 20 years of suppression of not only uh, Muslim lives, but civil rights, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, whereby uh, the leaders of Muslim civil rights groups were placed under surveillance. Uh, the FBI was permitted to map entire Muslim communities without suspicion of crime, uh, was able to create a network of informants, um, which usually just often means it was able to uh, leverage newly criminalized behavior um, such as charitable donations or spicy talk in chat rooms unrelated to acts of violence in order to compel people um, to inform on their neighbors, um, something that we tend to associate with authoritarian countries. Um, there was a moment uh, shortly after 9-11 when uh, the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft, um, offered essentially accelerated uh, citizen, uh, that offered essentially accelerated access to citizenship uh, for any uh, Muslim non-citizen in the United States who was willing, as he put it, to come forward uh, and inform on their neighbors uh, who were presumed to be uh, threats to the United States. Um, all of these things uh, occurred here at home um, not only overseas in the wars. And we tend to um, kind of define the war on terror as something that happens over there rather than something that happens over here. Absolutely. And, and you do a great job in the book showing how American nationalism and Islamophobia powered the war on terror and then how the war on terror intensified that same nationalism and Islamophobia until we get Trump as president. Uh, if the war on terror continues on as it has been going uh, these last 20 years, our domestic politics is just going to become even more toxic, isn't it? I think so. I think that we have tended to underappreciate the role of the war on terror in the accelerating deterioration um, of our politics in a way that erodes American democracy. Um, the war on terror is even to those who are not targeted by it, um, a sledgehammer uh, taken to the foundations of the American institutions that are supposed to safeguard our rights. Um, think of how often throughout the war on terror, the judicial branch simply acquiesces in the name of national security to the executive, uh, while the Supreme Court and other federal benches um, have indeed restrained the war on terror um, around the margins. Think of the, the spate of 2004 decisions, um, particularly related to uh, detentions um, that the court um, takes up and um, sort of uh, restrains the Bush administration somewhat. Um, more often, uh, more characteristically, the response from the courts has been to say that uh, they simply lack the power um, during a time of war uh, to meaningfully adjudicate uh, claims brought against the executive branch and the wisest thing to do in such an attitude, according to these federal judges, is to defer um, to, uh, you know, 
typically the people who appoint them. Um, instead, uh, this leads us to really toxic circumstances, uh, such as when in 2010, when the papers were full of accounts uh, leaked from the Obama administration about how they were targeting an American citizen on Waralaki uh, without trial for death. Um, Awaki's father, Nasser, uh, files a federal lawsuit to put an injunction on the executive branch from you know, killing his son without so much of, as, as a charge. And uh, the government says in response that uh, Nasser al-Awlaki can't possibly know that his son is in fact targeted just because news reports say so. And accordingly, he has no standing uh, to file his lawsuit. Uh, the judge, uh, a guy named John Bates, agrees with the government. And lo and behold, um, in 2011, al-Awlaki was killed. That is a really, you know, whatever anyone thinks of Anwar Awlaki and the threat posed by Anwar Awlaki, that is a very profound moment in the Constitution whereby the executive branch unilaterally decides that basically once the CIA says, oh, no, it would be too dangerous and unwieldy for us to capture someone, that they can just execute someone, um, an American citizen, Instead, and I would suggest to you know, take a long way back to your original question, that once such a president is established, eventually it will be normalized and other presidents will simply decide, particularly as they take an ever more expansive um, and ever more domestic definition of who is a terrorist, that they'll simply do that to more Americans. And what is going to stop them? Right, that's yeah, it's a very disturbing prospect. Uh, coming back to the Obama administration, you detail uh, how Obama accommodated the security state while he was president, uh, leading to what you call the "quote unquote" sustainable war on terror. Um, this was the the normalization and routinization of the war on terror on his watch. Uh, looking back at his record, uh, would you say that this is his most significant foreign policy legacy? I say it absolutely is. Uh, the Obama administration tried to treat Obama's actions in the war on terror as kind of an aberration. It didn't fit how they saw um, what they wanted to do in the world, that it was an unfortunate kind of gravitational pull um, from the security state and the prior administration. And I think that's an alibi. I think that, you know, as, as, um, as much as Obama wished to be defined, by, um, you know, go down the list, um, his aspirational, uh, not in fact accurate, um, reduction of the global nuclear arsenal, um, his, uh, diplomatic, um, his, I believe, valorous diplomatic engagement with both Cuba and Iran, um, and the Paris Climate Accord, um, the reality is none of those things survived the Trump administration. Only Obama's actions on the war on terror did. So when we just look at the actual ledger um, after the Obama administration, he doesn't really seem to have a foreign policy legacy besides the war on terror. And that's something I think particularly um, liberals need to kind of grapple with. 
Thank you, Spencer, for coming on the show today. Um, I've been following your work uh, since your Wired and Danger Room days uh, at, I believe, was it Daily Beast or the Danger or Danger Room was at da- at Danger Wired. Room was at Wired. Um, okay, the that, Daily Beast was two jobs later. Two jobs later. So I know that you're a New Yorker. You went to school in New York. I mean, a lot of this has shaped your reporting being right in the in the center of uh, the of ground zero and the launching of the war on terror. Um, can you tell me or tell us a little bit about how um, your your personal circumstances and and the, you know how you evolved as a, a national security reporter? Did you set out to to do national security reporting? Did 9-11 affect your career path? Um, and not only that, did it affect the way you cover national security? Because as you know, there are a lot of people who've covered national security who don't criticize the war policy and and act as though they haven't seen any of this coming. How 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 does how do you play into the, to the story, so to speak? I, I I appreciate the question. I'm the least interesting aspect of the story, <laughs> um, but since you ask. Um, I had no desire to be a national security reporter at all. It wasn't something I was not the kind of kid growing up who had any interest um, in the the military or um, the intelligence agencies, except from a kind of position of skepticism. Uh, My my mother was quite left wing. um, So it wasn't, you know, treated as a, as a sort of valorous thing that I think um, it is for a lot of my colleagues. You know, 9-11 and the, for any New Yorker, um, particularly of, of my age, I'm 41, I was 21 when 9-11 happened, uh, is a life-shaping experience. Um, I think there is an unfortunate tendency, particularly amongst those who uh, hate the war on terror to treat the trauma of 9-11 as if it wasn't real. Um, Just because the horror that New Yorkers experienced was exploited um, by the Bush administration with the acquiescence of of so many Democrats um, and the enthusiasm of the security state um, doesn't mean that the thing itself was was somehow ephemeral or trivial. Um, you know, any New Yorker can still see um, the you know the now faded but you know still present um, you know home painted hand painted memorials that you know that are you know on you know building facades and playground walls and handball courts and so forth. Um, I came to Washington figuring that I would report on this because that was what the story was. It's, it's perhaps not easy to remember 20 years later, but this crowded out the war on terror that is pretty much all of, of the national agenda and certainly the international agenda. Um, and so I thought that was sort of the only thing there was to cover. So, Oh, I had to teach myself um, what national security was. And, you know, that was a process, um, particularly given like I was afflicted by the same savagery that so many were right after 9-11. But it was a process of, you know, 
listening to tons of people, um, you know, first the think tanks and then um, former security officials and then eventually current security officials and so forth. Um, and all of them, you know, obviously everyone had their differences, but in large part, um, everyone bought into the war. Everyone bought into the way the war was conceptualized um, as a sprawling generational entity that the U.S. had no choice but to wage. And, you know, one of the unfortunate things about writing a book like mine is you've got to go back through your own early journalism and, you know, cringe quite a lot. Um, so it it was you know, not a dynamic that I was outside of or ever want to portray myself as outside of, um, but rather something that that I experienced like so many people experienced. The difference, I think, you know, is that um, when the wars began to become catastrophic, I was uninterested in shrinking away from that or justifying that. I wanted to explore what made them so catastrophic, what fueled the catastrophe. And that I think is, is something that newsrooms don't really put a lot of investment in. Um, you know, I can tell you a lot about uh, what goes into making the sausage of daily news, but um, it is, very often not an enterprise, you know, prone to reflection. It's an enterprise prone uh, to looking for what's next. And that kind of sets you up for failure in a lot of ways. Thank you. Um, and I just want to ask you one more question. I know we don't have a ton of time left, uh, but it's about the persistence of all of the law enforcement authorities that grew out of 9-11 and the global war on terror. And I know this is gonna be a bit of a provocative question, uh, but there's been some concern lately that those federal authorities uh, with uh, the accompanying concern about checks and balances and their unrestricted nature will be turned on uh, the domestic front. Uh, particularly in the wake of January 6th. Do you share a concern that uh, with all the demands to go after homegrown terrorism, white supremacy, um, domestic militias, that there will be some sort of war on terrorism in this country against Americans? Um, there was already a counterterrorism effort against Americans. You mean against white people? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is a real concern. Um, I don't, as much as I loathe white supremacy and as much as we have to recognize that white supremacist terrorism is the oldest, most lethal and most enduring form of terrorism in the United States, the lesson of the war on terror is not to wage a war on terror against anyone. People who commit acts of violence, people who, um, people who harm other people are criminals and have to be treated as criminals. Um, and, you know, redress has to occur that way. What the war on terror does is it expands, it opens the aperture of who is targetable and who is a criminal. And it does so by criminalizing um, either superficial or ideological affiliation, 
Um, we don't often appreciate, I, I'm just going to go on a soapbox for a second. We, I believe we do not often appreciate that um, one of the most important First Amendment freedoms is freedom of association. Why was freedom of association uh, part of the Constitution? The reason why is because without a guarantee of freedom of association, you will be held responsible by a government authority um, for what people you are connected with by social or professional or religious um, or political bonds do. And that's an incredibly dangerous thing. That's a profound pr power. Um, it's a, it, that's a very dangerous thing. That's a profound freedom for, for the government to violate and the government will violate it um, out of expediency. I, I think it's very important to remember that this isn't something that the government may do to Americans. This is something the government has been doing to Americans. And so, you know, I know you didn't mean this, you know, this way, Kelly, but um, just because now uh, white people um, on the right are in danger of this happening to them, A, that is not a reason for um, other people, particularly on the left, not to show solidarity, um, not with any actual white supremacist, but with the principle that there ought not to be any war on terror. But secondly, it is also an opportunity that I want to see um, those on the right uh, take up to recognize that they have an obligation, if they don't want this happening to them, to introspect on why they were silent or they applauded when this happened to their Muslim neighbors. Exactly. And so I think we need to, you know, take it from, from kind of both ends there. But um, the war on terror is a series of authoritarian opportunities. Um, we have the absolute political cowardice uh, in this country not to respond to January 6th politically. It is easier, far easier, given the amount of support in the Republican Party, um, either outright or through, you know, vague or, or muddied language, um, uh, for January 6th. And rather than confront um, those members of Congress who excused it, applauded it, or outright cheered it on, who spread the lie that the 2020 election had been stolen by the Democrats to facilitate January 6th. Instead of any political reprisal happening against them, the option that uh, the Biden administration, the FBI, the Justice Department, and you know, the broader Democratic Party have gone with is to have simply a criminal response. Two things about this. One, it's doomed to fail. The war on terror should have taught you that um, securitizing responses to political challenges um, is uh, a recipe for nothing but persistent injustice and repression. Um, and then secondly, you know, the war on terror has always exempted white people. It has always exempted white extremism. It has always exempted white supremacy. Um, I try and lay that out in the book. Um, and so these tools uh, will meet a lot of hesitation from those in the FBI and in the Department of Homeland Security for using them as expansively as perhaps uh, their implications are against such members of um, the overclass 
for lack of a better term. And then they will inevitably be used as they have so frequently throughout American history, not just after 9-11, on non-white people and on left-wingers. Um, we have a problem in this country of not seeing threats to our neighbors as threats to ourselves. We have a problem in this country of going along with the definitions of threats that elites in both parties um, present to us that don't resemble reality. This is a time for solidarity. Absolutely. I, I think that's a great note to end on. And, and I, I agree entirely, Spencer. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we're out of time now. Uh, but do check out his book, Reign of Terror, and also check out his newsletter, Forever Wars, foreverwars.substack.com. Thank you, Spencer. Thank hey, you, Spencer. thank you, Kelly. And thank you, Daniel. I really thank appreciate so much. that. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.